can't always have things you enjoy. And if you turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, we find there And if you salute your brethren in verse 47 only, what do you more than others? Do not even the publicans so. Be you therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. And we come on to the last thing I want to really talk about in this chapter, which probably... um, the most important thing is the realization is what do ye more than others? You know, what, what is it about you that you do that's more than others do? That's the question that Christ says, what are you more than others? You see, publicans, if you take the context, for if you love them that love you, what reward have you? Do not even the publicans the same. And really, a Christian has to do more than others. Christ started off, you remember this passage we're looking at, started off with accept your righteousness, exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll in no wise enter in to the kingdom of heaven. And he said we've got to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And here, at the end, he's saying, well, if you do that, well, what are you doing more than others? The answer is nothing. And so he comes down to start bringing us to comparisons. Now, what we have to look at is, be you therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. And Christ is asking us to do something totally completely and utterly impossible in humanity. There's one thing you and I cannot do, and that's to be like God, or God-like. But if we take, when Christ first went into the temple, you remember Simeon in Luke came and took him up in his arms. And one of the things he prophesied is, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel. As he took him in his arms and blessed him. This child is set for the falling and the rising again of many in Israel. And it's really the great paradoxes that we have in Christianity that Show us what the truth is. You know, the gospel is full of paradox. And it's something that we need to understand. And it's something that needs to sink into our hearts. There's no way that you and I can be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect in our natural man. Natural man is so far from perfection as to be totally, utterly, and completely depraved. And in fact, I think that most of us would agree that the Ten Commandments, if they're just taken in their natural context, are hard enough to stick to. 
But if you take the true spiritual meaning of them, I'm talking about the way the Pharisees quoted them was bad enough. But when you take their true meaning as Christ portrayed it and as God intended it, then where are we? Whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after hath committed adultery in his heart already. If you get angry with your brother without a cause, you're a murderer. And you start going down and seeing. Jesus said, well, they say this, but I say unto you. And you start listening to it. Turn the other cheek, he says. And the more he goes on, the more we begin to despair. In fact, this passage, if you look at it from a spiritual point of view, is full of total discouragement. No one who reads this scripture can do anything but get very discouraged. When you look at your life in the light of day, and you begin to compare it to the standard that Christ is preaching, there is a great gulf fixed between. It's almost as big a gulf, in fact it is as big a gulf, as the gulf that God has fixed between the dead and the living. And we begin to understand that we ourselves cannot possibly live this way. There is no way that man in his humanity can make it. And yet, if you read the verse, what is it, 48, Be you therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect, we discover it's not a request, it's not a suggestion, it's a command. Christ is saying, look here, you've got to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And we begin to look at it and say, but just a minute, I can't be. I cannot be perfect. There's within me that which is totally and utterly depraved and fancy putting it at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, couldn't he have put it at the end of a less uh, obtrusive and challenging scripture? Why didn't he stick it at the end of um, uh, when he said, woe to the Pharisees? Uh, and then we felt, well, we're not Pharisees, so we're all right. I mean, why stick it at the end here? Having said our righteousness has got to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, and then having lined out exactly the way we're to live, he gives the death blow. Suddenly he tells you, when you think, well, maybe, he says, right, now be perfect, as my Father in heaven is perfect. You've got to be perfect, as your Father in heaven. Boom. Now, if you didn't go down... On all the others, this should hit you. If the others haven't affected you, this should move you. If you weren't discouraged before, this should do it. If you didn't feel bowed down before, thank God this is at the end. Only at the end of this chapter, not at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And suddenly we see, oh Lord, you know, you're asking the impossible. 
Well, of course he is. But if he's commanding it, surely there must be a possibility of obeying. He says, be you therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. So with the command, there is the possibility of obedience. And we have to understand that he's speaking words of life. And he's saying, look, you've got to be perfect. Even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now also, it should give us encouragement. Well, if Christ commanded it, it must be possible And then we look at ourselves and we see the total contradiction in impossibility. I hope. We look at our natures and we look back over the scriptures and we think, oh God, if that's what you expect, don't expect me to be perfect. If this is really what you mean, forget it. I won't make it. And so you won't. Now, the materialistic people who come to this scripture and look at it deduce two things that are wrong. Um, The first thing is this, and it's an error that you don't need to fall into, nor do I. That the Sermon on the Mount is something practical that we can do. Now, if you think that the Sermon on the Mount is some practical way of living, some ethical code, that all you have to do is set your will and do it, You are deluded. You have never seen yourself as you are and you don't know much about yourself. Because as soon as you really look at it, you, if you have any honesty at all, must admit that there's no way you're ever going to live up to that. Hmm? Or do you think you can? Anyone think they can make it by setting their will? Well, that's one error you won't fall into. And don't think that Christ has set a standard. Now you've got to go and live it and set your will and, you know, I really do it. You won't last a minute. You'll just look at someone as you go to walk out the meeting and that'll be the end of it. You remember they did this or they thought that or you heard they said this and boom, you're finished. Or you think about someone at work and boom, you're finished. You do all sorts and you're finished. No hope. And setting our wills isn't going to do anything. Nothing at all. You know, there was one person who used to come to me and say, oh, I'm so weak-willed. I find they're the most stubborn, strong-willed people there are. But will, anyway, has nothing to do with this. Do what you like. You can have an iron will. And it isn't going to help you keep this. And the second thing um, is that people who fall into error, they've never seen the uniqueness of the Christian position. They've never seen that a Christian's totally and completely different from every other person in the world. A person who's a Christian is unique. They've never seen the uniqueness of his position. And therefore they think a Christian is someone who adopts Christian principles. 
and sets his will to live him. That is not a Christian. And so, we must beware of those errors. You can't live that way. Those are the two main errors. Now, if you want a perfect definition of a Christian, I suppose it's really taken from the scripture that Simeon prophesied when he said, this child is set for the falling and rising of many in Israel. And the thing that you have to realize is you have to go down to come up. And the more you see the depravity of your own soul and your total inability, your total uselessness in trying to live to God's standard and your total inability to ever respond to God and your total lack of desire to respond to God unless you've come to that place you haven't got anywhere and the trouble is when the truth begins to dawn on our heart we go the opposite way we get discouraged when the truth dawns on your heart the last thing you want to do is get up and shout hallelujah Oh, you might want to shout it, but the last thing you can do is actually shout it. Because suddenly it begins to grip your heart just how awful you are. I always worry when people tell me that they've become Christians and, and everything is total joy. There must be something wrong. Of course there's the joy of the Lord. However, when you begin to see yourself, you begin to mourn. You begin to hunger and thirst. You begin to realize your poverty and you cry out, Oh God, wretched man that I am. You hunger and thirst after righteousness and you get worse. In fact, there comes a stage where you wonder whether you have any faith at all. You wonder whether you'll ever believe. You wonder whether Christ's sacrifice actually applied to you because you're so terrible it couldn't possibly meet your need. And you begin it every time you get up and you do something, you think, oh no, that again. And everything within you begins to cry out, oh God, deliver me. Now, you see, Christ is set. That's his whole purpose for your fall. You'll go down. You know, you don't fall up. You hang a string of sausages up, but you'll notice they're always down. You hang them on a wall. You don't ever fall up. The only thing that goes against nature is bananas. They grow the wrong way. But you don't fall upwards. You go down. And when we're set for a fall, and Christ is set for the fall and rising again... Now, if you fall, don't worry. There's a song which, um, Oh, rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. Now, you see, many of you might have sung it thinking you're falling into sin. No, it's not that. Now, one of the things the enemy rejoices in doing is trying to discourage us. But there's a truth in the fact, don't worry, when you get discouraged and cast down, 
you'll rise up because you'll begin to trust in God and stop trusting in self. And usually the more you fall, the greater your trust in God becomes because you realize that it's not worth trusting in yourself. I mean, if you trust in yourself, you find what a mess you make of it. And the more you fall, the more you learn that, well, there's no point in trusting self, don't you? You don't. Are you awake? Well, do you or don't you? You don't. Yes, you do. You don't. I just wanted to know if anyone's awake out there. It's obviously too hot. One's got to realize there's the fall. And you've got to go down. Now there is no way to circumvent it. What we'd like is to have a glorious gospel like uh, some people preach where they tell you, come to Jesus and your problems are over. I found quite the reverse. They began. Before then, I could do things with total impunity and never have a conscience. Suddenly, I couldn't do anything without feeling guilty. At least not anything in my whole life. Suddenly I found that there were things that I, I could get away with that if I dare step out of line, I felt awful. Didn't you find that? There was liberty at one time and suddenly there's total bondage. And sin becomes exceedingly sinful. And you realize, goodness me, what's happening? What's going on? What's got hold of me? That's the way I found it. Yet God delivered me from the power of sin. Yet God changed my life. God took away the desires for many things. Uh, and I found for a long time I could walk uh, um, totally free. But then I found suddenly God said, Oh, Sonny Jim, now that's nice superficial Christianity, but how about the real thing? And then he began to deal with my inward thoughts. And he began to show me my inward desires. Now, on a superficial level, it's simple. Many of you have lived in the church and on a superficial level would say you're converted. But when God begins to dig deeper and his light comes on, suddenly you wonder if you've ever got saved at all. You can look back and you can think to a time two years ago where you were confident in your salvation. Suddenly you're confident in nothing. And you think, just a minute, I've gone backwards. Well, quite right. Not that you've lost your salvation, but you're beginning to see yourself as you really are, and you thought you were really a saved good person. And, you know, there was something about you that God almost found acceptable. And suddenly you find you stink. And you feel all the time you need a bath. You feel, goodness me, am I really like that? Am I really capable of that? And then you find that God lets you fall once or twice and you find how badly capable you are of doing so many things that you thought you'd never do. And then he begins to show you how your heart ticks and then one day he takes off the lid and shows you one or two of your motives. And suddenly the guise and the veneer and the varnish becomes all chipped and ugly. 
And then he begins to strip away and peel away layer after layer after layer. And, and all you find as you go on is as he goes deeper and deeper and deeper, you find it gets blacker and blacker and blacker. The banana looked all right until you started to peel it. And then it looked so moly. And the more you pull off, you know, it's almost like he strips off layers. And you find that every time he speaks and his light comes and another layer seems to go, you think, oh. And instead of getting closer to God, you find you're seemingly pushed further and further away from what you believe you should be. But all he's really doing is showing you what you really are. You always were that. It's just that light's coming. Now, the strange thing is, you're falling to go up. You are actually getting nearer to God. His light is coming and revealing more of truth to you, but what you don't understand is... That light is making you see yourself as you are. The nearer you get to God and the closer you begin to walk with him, the worse you get. And that's the monstrous revelation. Because what we all are looking for is the ultimate experience where we're perfect. What we want is the ultimate experience where suddenly it's all gone. It's all done. I am just totally completely and utterly holy, supreme. Uh, my varnish now has no flaws. There is not a sign of stain beneath the veneer. And yet, it's more like this. You know, Have you ever seen a polished table? Can you imagine a polished table, beautiful veneer on it? Take the organ, nice veneer, polish on the top of it. Imagine someone walking in there and they come to admire it with an axe. Well, that's sometimes the way I feel God deals with us. You know, he takes a hammer, the word of God's a hammer, and you feel you've got, really, you're beginning to get somewhere in God. I mean, you can come to a meeting and you can weep. And, you know, you feel that God cleanses you and you begin to feel good inside and you really had an experience of God. You've got a nice veneer of religion on you and suddenly God takes the hammer. And suddenly it's splintered and shattered and you're in about a million pieces and you look up and you say, Oh God, you know, am I saved? Oh, how, could I, how could I be like this? And you begin to pick up the splinters and put them back together again and get the veneer and the polish. You look at each piece and say, Which side's polished all that side? And you try and stick it all back together. It's called your life. And then you get it back and you glue in the little bits with excuses. And you get it all in a nice little thing. It looks a bit cracked still, but it's almost there by the end of the meeting. And you think, oh, at least I can last till next time. And you get here and bang! And you start picking up the pieces again. Now, there'll come a day when you'll realize, hey, just a minute, what use are the pieces? None. You see, the Lord doesn't want you to pick up your pieces. 
You know, the word of God grinds slow and exceeding small. What we want is the word of God to kind of have a little niche so that when the wheel goes round over us, we're left whole and complete. And nothing was, have you seen a little grain of corn? When, when It has to be crushed, totally crushed and obliterated. It looks all right as a grain of corn, but to be of any use to make flour, around comes a big wheel and it grinds it and grinds it until it's in powder. And then they take out the outside, or call it the veneer and the polish, and they throw it away and burn it. And the splintered life and the shattered veneer is what God's going to burn up. It's called chaff. And what's left is the inside that's ground and broken and taken down and ground again and broken and taken down. And then after it's beaten down and ground down, it's banged together with a little water of the Spirit and bunged in the oven, as if that's not bad enough called tribulation and you get a little burning on both sides and you know you wonder oh god <laughs> am i saved many people cry that from the oven <laughs> especially when the heat gets going no one likes being cooked but that's the way life is you see, now, when you take this scripture, what it's actually done is it's begun to grind you all down. Some of you have said, oh dear, oh dear. Oh dear. And you begin to get discouraged. So you should. Be utterly discouraged with yourself. You stink. And God's going to ever bring the hammer to you. The axe is going to be laid to the root of the tree. The veneer is going to go. There is no way that veneer is going to stay. God's going to crush you. It's no good pleading to get off the wheel. It's going to come round. You'll hear it grinding slowly towards you. It's coming. And when it comes, there's no way you'll hold that little ear of corn together. Do you ever look? At a grind wheel, if you've ever been to an old windmill, I once went to an old windmill and watched and there was this groove and, you know, the wind would go round, the sail would turn and this big old wheel, millstone, it would turn and it was an amazing contraption. I remember all gears and everything and watching it turn. It's not the place to put your finger. And they used to drop corn in there and grind it. And there's no way you'll hold a piece of corn together. It just gets crushed out. And that's really what God's doing with your life. And when Christ had finished exhorting these people with the Sermon on the Mount, then he says at the end, well, be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Almost the death blow. It's a kick that who can recover from? Well, I hope you never do. Because if you try and put the veneer back together, you're in the worst place ever. It's for the falling and rising of many in Israel. Now, I want to talk about the essentially unique personality of a Christian. 
You know, you are unique. Thank God. Each one of you is unique. There's something about you that no one else has. I know many of you rejoice that there's only one me. I rejoice even more that there's only one you. I sometimes wish that the wheel would go quicker over you. It doesn't need to really get near me too quickly. But over you, you need to be in the center. And what we have to understand is this unique kind of us, isn't there? The unique kind of person. And the first thing about that essential uniqueness of you is when you look at it, we're separated by what we do in our lives. But we're separated beyond natural ability. It, we do more, you know, it's going the extra mile. It's turning the other cheek. There's something about the way we live that separates us from the world totally. We do more than anyone if we truly have Christ. There's something about us that will excel more than any natural ability could allow us to. There's something in our beings that somehow... You know, it's not natural, for instance, to want to come and to hear the Word of God preach four times a week. It's unnatural. It's unnatural to want to praise God and pour out your heart before God and have God zap you every so often and bang you down to size and then beat you up this way and crack you over that way and just as you're about to recover, he bangs you right off your feet again and you look up and you say, Lord, uh, I think I love you. Uh, uh, you know, and just as you've got the words out, boom! Well, I thought I did, but this is too much. And then he dusts you off and says, son, just get in the middle of the wheel. And, and, and round it comes and you, uh, that's unnatural. Unless you're a masochist. Which undoubtedly some of you must be to keep coming back. But we're different. We're separated. And the second thing is, we do what others can't do in praying for our enemies. Now, natural man can't do that. Natural man must retaliate. Must. Now, the Christian just goes beyond it. He becomes a unique person. A Christian. And then the next thing I want you to notice is we've got to be positively God-like and Christ-like. When you look at the Scriptures, Jesus summed all this up, and then he says, right, you've got to be like God. But he doesn't actually say like God. He says, like your Father, which is in heaven. And he says, look, it's no good doing your best. It's no good aspiring to your best. You've got to be like God. Like your Father that's in heaven. That's the way you've got to be. And he sets us not a pattern to follow. He doesn't set us a, 
a, a kind of standard we've got to live to. What he says is, look, you have to have the nature of God. You have to be like Christ. You have to be like God, your Father in heaven. In fact, you've not only got to be like him, you've got to be perfect like him. Now, that is quite a tall order. And when you start analyzing it and looking at it, there's contrasts I want to point out. A, there's the natural man cannot think beyond carnal thoughts. But the spiritual man delights in the law of God. There's something about the natural man when you get restrictions in your life, when, when you kind of are told you can't do this and you must do that, what's the first thing you find happens? You jive at it, don't you? Don't you? When it says keep off the grass and you want to go that way, what do you do? What? Should keep off it. You want to walk on it, but don't. Unless you're Mary, and then you just walk straight over it thinking, I'm South African. <laughs> uh, she'd just speak to them in Afrikaans and pretend she couldn't understand, I suppose. That's an advantage. I have to speak in tongues and pretend I can't understand her. <laughs> Mind you, if they interpret it, I don't have a problem. Um, <laughs> but you, you want to go. You want to go. You say, oh, dear. You know, I'm not accepting that. And you want to go. Now, that is the way that we all are until God births us. Then we delight in the law of God after the inner man. We begin to delight in God. Now, that you have to be born from above for. That is the first kind of unique thing in you, that you actually don't find the law of God restrictive, you find it a delight. And then, B, the natural man is always negative. He always looks at things and thinks, oh, I can't do this, I can't do that. The spiritual man is positive. He hungers and thirsts after righteousness. The natural man, when he thinks about righteousness, he thinks, oh dear, to be righteous I mustn't do this and mustn't do that. The spiritual man, he's not bothered about what he mustn't do, he's worried about having the life of God in his being. And we have to see there's a total contrast. We're not bothered in that realm, we're bothered about hungering and thirsting after righteousness. If so be, we're born. And then see... The natural man thinks of everything in terms of his actions. If you talk to a natural man, he'll say, uh, and say to him, you shouldn't have done this. He, say, he might say to you, well, I suppose I shouldn't. But the spiritual man's worried about the intents of his heart. What bothers the spiritual man is not just his outward actions, be they right or wrong, acceptable or unacceptable. He's worried about his motives. And God's always challenging him and hitting him in his motives. 
fact he can do right things and then he feels awful because he knows he does it for the wrong motive. He'll turn up and do something for someone and then he'll suddenly feel awfully convicted because he knows the only reason he did it was he felt he had to do it or ought to do it. His motives are all wrong. And God stirs down and hits you with a hammer on your motives. Uh, you, you know, spiritual man. That's the trouble. You, you think in, in a way where the natural man wouldn't think. The natural man doesn't even think about his motives. Thinks he's a good person. And then D... You know, if you take a natural man and you go to them and you say, you know, Peter, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, the natural man will turn around to you and say, well, I know I'm not entirely perfect. He'll turn around and say, well, no one's perfect. And his whole attitude to life is, well, you know, I'm not perfect, but I'm not a bad person. And a lot of people say to me, well, you know, I'm not wicked. I mean, I'm not perfect, but I'm not wicked. But the spiritual man sees the depravity of his nature. Charles Wesley wrote a hymn, and he called himself vile and full of sin. Now, the spiritual man sees himself as vile and full of sin. He doesn't look on his outward action. He sees what's really inside, and he hates it. That's the spiritual man. Natural man says, well, you know, people, no one's perfect. But spiritual man, oh God. He wouldn't even claim that there was anything good in him. If he was truly spiritual, he'd see. So some of you who felt you were going down might find you're actually coming up. You're becoming spiritual. Well, in this sense that God's actually giving you a little bit of light to see yourself. You haven't got far. Because you haven't seen yourself really as bad as you are. People come and say, oh, I feel terrible. Don't like seeing myself. And they haven't even got an eighth. Some have only got a sixteenth part of Revelation. And they come along, oh, you know, how could I be like that? Mm, simple. Wait till you see the rest. Now that's the difference. The world aren't like that. The world don't see themselves as vile and full of sin. Do they? You talk to them and they don't feel a need for anything really. They're quite good people. Give to Oxfam. Help with the church jumble sale. They attend all the whist drives. And the wine and cheese parties to raise money for the steeple. They do all sorts of things, and they think they're quite good people, really. They take meals on wheels. Obviously have some great spiritual significance, which I miss, but you know the type of person... WVS rammed everywhere and they are the people you know they, they consider themselves the pillars of society and 
Yet, it's so false. And yet, if you really know Christ, and God's really began to show you yourself, you just feel, oh, I'm so vile and full of sin. Now, the next thing you want to know, E it is, if you're writing it down, is a natural man will tolerate other people. He'll be tolerant. He'll tolerate people having different views than himself. I'm talking about the natural man that's got the good side. Whereas the spiritual man doesn't just tolerate, but when he sees people, he realizes they're just dupes of the devil. He, he feels sorry for them. You know, I don't tolerate certain people. I just feel sorry for them. I look at them. I look at their lives. I look at the mess. And I just feel sorry for them. Poor people. They're just dupes of the devil. Totally blinded by Satan in their hearts. If God hadn't shown me light and hadn't given me light, I'd be in worse condition than them. And I just feel sorry for them. Don't you? You look at them and you... You just sympathize. You see the sovereignty of God in saving you and you look at them and you think, poor people, sit in darkness. They just don't know. That's the spiritual man. And then F, the natural uh, man sees God as someone who's to be obeyed. And the natural man, the man with natural inclinations, always sees God with fear and a tendency to fear. And he thinks, well, I better do this because God says that. Whereas the spiritual man, he sees God is to be loved and cherished. And because he loves and cherishes him and wants to walk his way, he obeys him. And so he comes at a totally different angle from the natural man. It's important to know that. And you'll find that all the things I'm mentioning now are all mentioned above in the Beatitudes. But there we are. And then you've got G, and that is the natural man will give generously out of his superabundance. Provide a natural man has got more than he needs, he'll be generous. But the spiritual man gives out of his poverty. That's why you've got Jesus standing by the seat and looking and there was a widow who cast in her mite and he'd watched all the rich men casting in big bundles. And he said, this widow has given all that she hath. Now the spiritual man gives everything. The natural man gives out of their superabundance. Now it's very deceptive in the heart. The more you give, the more righteous you feel. But unless a person gives to the point where they're giving to the point of need and they have to make sacrifice in their giving, they're only giving out of their superabundance. Natural man does that. As long as it doesn't affect your life, it's easy to give, isn't it? Hmm? Doesn't put too many strictures on you and confine you too much? Well, open hand. And that is the way people treat God. You know, it's all right, Lord, out of my superabundance, look how you've blessed me. Oh, I'd love to give you a gift, Lord. You know, your work, help it prosper. 
but they never give to the point of need. Providing they can give out a superabundance, fine. That's the natural man. He's a bit subtle. Spiritual man, well, he makes sacrifices. When you read Whitfield's book, if some of you have taken the trouble to read it, I mean, that man gave and gave and gave. Some people won't give unless they've got a superabundance. Lord, if you bless me and prosper me, then I'll give. So God prospers them and blesses them, so they give. But they'll only give the portion they can really afford. As long as it doesn't really hurt me, Lord, I, you know, I, I really feel I should give. But when you have to give out and it costs you, that's a bit of a different game, isn't it? Hmm? Difference between the natural and the spiritual. See, we're to deny ourselves. But denial of self is not always easy, is it? But it's a nice feeling when you give out of your superabundance. It's nice to give, isn't it? Nice to give to God, isn't it? Hmm? Well, isn't it? Makes you feel nice inside, doesn't it? Well, doesn't it? Well, doesn't it? But how many give out of the superabundance? I mean, you know, Lord, you know, open hand. Well, I mean, I can afford to give you this. Feel good inside about it, Lord, but spiritual man goes beyond that. There's nothing in you that's righteous if you haven't got there, you know. Love of money is the root of all evil. Hardest thing to get out of a person is that root. Isn't it? Somehow it goes deep. Now the natural man gets hooked up. Deceives his own heart. Spiritual man's of a different caliber. Unless you give till it costs, you haven't given. Oh, you have in a natural sense, not in the spiritual. And it's one of the lessons we all need to learn. Christian lives and living is loving. Because he loves his Lord, he makes sacrifices. And then H, the natural man, uh, when he reacts to trials and tribulations, reacts with bitterness. Found in your heart, you know, something happens and it makes you angry. Why'd God let this happen? I've heard people say it. I thought God loved me. If God really cared, and so on, and so on. Now what they're saying is they're just living in a natural plane, not, no spirituality in their lives at all. When a man or a woman questions like that, there's something awfully wrong with their inward nature. You see, tribulation and the way we react to it and trials tells us a lot about our spirit. The Christian... He has a 
knowledge that all things work together for good to them that love God, to those who are the called according to his purposes. And somehow he knows, even though it seems so contrary, he knows God is working out a great weight of glory and he's going to bless him out of it. He's dealing with things in his life. He's doing things. And his reaction is a total trust in God. Lord, I don't see the way it'll turn out, but I know you're faithful and I know you'll deal. And you're dealing with my heart and life and I'm trusting in that. I know it seems impossible, but good will come out of it. That's the spiritual man's attitude. Natural man's is to grouse and grumble and accuse God and accuse the brethren and accuse anyone. Spiritual man said, well, God's faithful. When trial and tribulation come, which way do you go? In your prayer life. What's happening, Lord? Or Job's attitude. Though he slay me, yet will I love him. When sickness comes, are you asking God what's gone wrong? Or are you saying, well, all things work together for good to those that love God? How ticks it in you? Natural man or spiritual? And then we go on to um, I. Now the natural man, when injustice is done to him, and he feels someone's done an injustice to him, does he react? Boy, he knows his rights to a T. And he'll demand them. Whereas the spiritual man looks at the things and he says, well, God's will be done, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. And he doesn't have it a resignation. He has a positive attitude to it, knowing that it's in God's purposes, God's sovereign. Great difference between the natural and the spiritual. And then Jay... The natural man, the best natural man, can be passive towards his enemies. He won't exactly hate them. You know, he won't get bitter about them. There's a passivity. With the best you can do in natural man. But the spiritual man will love his enemies. He will sympathize with them, he'll care for them, and he'll seek to win them. He might seek to win them by speaking the truth and standing up. But he's not got any animosity. He sees that they oppose themselves. They don't oppose you, really. They don't oppose God. They're opposing themselves and their hope of salvation. And then K, the natural man, dies with dignity. There's a lot of men who've died with dignity. When death comes, there's a lot of people who put on a brave face and a stiff upper lip. And then they've gone stiff all over. But there's a lot of people who die with kind of a brave face and courage. In fact, as they pass from this life, they seem to have confidence. And yet the Christian sees departing from this life, he's going to a better kingdom. Somehow he sees this life as better a transitional period till he goes into glory to ever be with his Lord and he looks forward to separating from the body and going to be in present with God. 
Christian dies not passively or negatively with a kind of dignity. He dies with a joy that he's going to meet his maker and be with him forever. What a difference between the natural and the spiritual. When you're there, when a natural man dies, somehow it's almost as though the devil's come to get his own. I've seen that. But oh, with a spiritual man, he just rejoices that God's going to let him escape from this body and this old flesh and go to glory. What a wonderful thing. Now, looking at all those natural and spiritual, where do you fit? Which side are you on? Now it's no good being spiritual for three, natural for twelve. Or natural for eleven. And spiritual for one and think you'll be alright because you can die rejoicing. That's no good. What you've got to do, you've got to say, just a minute, let me examine myself, whether I'm really in the faith. Am I walking in the spirit or am I walking in the flesh? How do I react? What's going on in me? See, all these things are to do with being perfect, as your Father in heaven's perfect. Having that spirit and nature. The nature of the Lamb. Now, here we have no continuing city. You remember it says in Hebrews 11, there's no continuing city. We don't look for this life as our end. We're looking for the next life. This life is only a transitional thing. It's preparing us for glory and for heaven. We're not actually building anything here. Except the white hut. Um, w but that's not going to last. That's going to burn. That's why it's wooden. It'll go quicker. Um, we're not going to keep it. The black hut will go as quick too. We're not going to keep it. It'll all go. What we have to understand is what God's purposes are. Do understand that. God's intention. And we're say, we, we should be living saying, Lord, we know this is now dwelling place for all eternity. We're just living here now, but we know that it's glory we're looking towards. We're living for the future, not living for the present. The difference between the natural and the spiritual man, the natural man will say something like, I'm going to set my will and live to this standard. The spiritual man will take one look at the standard and say, Oh, Lord, there's one thing I cannot do. And that's live like that. Unless you come and unless you change my nature and you impart your life into me, there is no way I can live like that. Unless you come and you do a work within by divine grace, you can forget it. I cannot be perfect like my Father is in heaven. There's no way. Now I want you to notice something. Jesus didn't say be perfect like God. He said be perfect like your Father in heaven is perfect. And there's one thing about it. The only people that can live like that are people who are born of God. By your natural birth you'll never make it. But when God's your Father in heaven and when you come to realize and have the cry of the Spirit which cries Abba Father 
and you realize that God's your Father, then quite honestly, and not to put it irreverently, but to put it in a, a term, you can become like a chip off the old block, so to speak. In other words, my son, whatever else he might do, he has some of my traits. There's something about him that identifies him as being my son, besides the size of his head uh, and his handsome features. There's something about there's something about him that identifies him with me. His willingness to win. There's certain aspects of the nature inside. Now, when God's your father, you have those aspects. When God is your father, there's something about you. Now, you might not yet be perfect in the sense of fullness of perfection, but there is within you a hungering and thirsting after righteousness, a recognition of poorness of spirit, a mourning over your state. There are all the things that Christ listed. And then there are signs of the fruit of the Spirit in your life, a total change. You live totally outside the realm of the natural. You're in the spiritual realm. If so be, God's met you. Now you're going down. There'll be a day when you'll step into glory, having put off this body. But until then, you'll get a lower and lower and worse and worse estimation of yourself. If you think you've gone anywhere spiritually, it shows you've gone nowhere. When you know you've gone nowhere, you're actually getting somewhere. You're getting to the point of realizing you're nowhere. And when you realize you are nowhere then you really have got somewhere. And you begin to realize that Christ has got to be all in all in your life. And if he doesn't live a life through you, that's the end. You can't do it. And it's that that God's been doing over the last couple of months. So, whilst you should be discouraged with yourselves, and I highly recommend it, and if any of you aren't discouraged, come and see me and I'll give you good reason to be, if I can. Uh, yet, take encouragement that you need to know you're nowhere to be somewhere. And if you think you're somewhere, you really have got nowhere. And the last couple of months has been wasted. And God is wanting to do things in our lives and to bring us all to the place where we can say... Vile and full of sin I am. And realize our total inability and then cling to the cross on Calvary and realize that God must be my all in all. I must be able to say with Paul, I am what I am by the grace of God, knowing that what I am has got to be God's grace alone bringing me there. And that his life must be in me. I must be like Peter said, a partaker of the divine nature. I must know like Paul said in Colossians, Christ in you is the hope of glory. I must be able to say with Paul to live is Christ, to die is gain. I live nevertheless not I but Christ liveth in me and the life that I now live I live by the faith of the Son of God. I live nevertheless not I 
In other words, the great gulf is suddenly bridged by a birth into the spiritual realm and a life in the spiritual realm. And always when you walk in that realm, you'll see the depravity of your own nature. You'll have a lower and lower estimation of yourself. And that is the truth. And if your estimation of yourself doesn't get worse or better, should I say, by seeing yourself worse every day, there's something wrong. And so, the prophecy that Simeon gave in the temple when he picked Jesus up in his arms and he said, this child is set for the fall and rising of many in Israel. That prophecy has come true in you. If so be, you're beginning to see your need of him. And if you're falling, you'll be able to sing the song we sing. Oh, rejoice not against me, O oh my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. There'll be a rising up of the holy life and power of God. A cessation of all trust in self. And a glorious faith in the faithfulness of God. Because let's face it, we'll never be faithful, will we? Hmm? There's nothing in us that's ever going to be faithful. God's faithful. And if you trust in his faithfulness, you'll be more sensible than trusting in your own. We are the most unfaithful beings that ever existed. And that's the truth. But God's faithful. So if you feel discouraged by the devil and he condemns you, sing to him, Oh, rejoice not against me, all my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. And know that the further you fall, the higher you'll rise in that day. And it's better to keep going down you'll go up further. Better to lose any vestige of pride in yourself by seeing yourself as ugly as you are and see that your, all your hope is in Christ. That is what Christianity and the Gospel is all about. It's telling people, firstly, that they're totally depraved, wicked, twisted, distorted and can't do anything to help themselves and then telling you there's a loving God who's full of grace and truth who will deliver you and impart his life to you. And that's the only gospel I believe in. Jesus Christ, the child, set for the fall and rise of many in Israel. Do you know him like that? Maybe you keep feel, feeling, you know, the song that says, I keep falling and falling and falling. Oh, it's in love with him. But somehow you feel you're falling and falling and falling out of love with yourself. You know, I keep falling and falling and falling. And you think, oh dear. And you get up in the morning and it's another day. And your heart isn't full of rejoicing, it's full of, oh. And as the days go by and day succeeds day, you have to live with yourself. And that's so unpleasant. But have a thought for us who have to live with you too. We need the greatest sympathy. But as we live like that and we realize our need, 
let's have faith. Christ said, be you perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. There is a promise in that. God will change you. And in his faithfulness, he'll set you free. And that's the wonder of it all. We'll sing that little song. Uh, not I keep falling and falling, though that's true. Oh, but oh, rejoice not against me, oh, mine enemy. Now maybe you've felt the devil's been having a good laugh. Maybe you've felt condemned, bowed down, troubled. Well, so you should be. It's about time you were. But then know this, that it's Christ who brings the fall and Christ who brings the rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light unto me. Somehow we see our souls, the darkness, the despair and the sin. And then we find it's the Lord who's the light. He's shown us what we really are. Wasn't that we were better one day and suddenly we've got worse. Just he's shown what we're really like. Then he'll come and change us. Deliverance comes about when God shows us how bad we are and we don't want ourselves any longer. That's what deliverance is. The way Christ delivers you is to make you loathe yourself. That's the only way any man gets delivered. If you like it, you'll never be delivered. When you begin to hate it, then God sets you free. Oh, rejoice not against me, O oh mine enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. No, you'll fall, but know this, in Christ you'll rise. Let's stand and sing it.
that give you faith to believe? Be you perfect, even as my, your Father in heaven is perfect. You say, just a minute, if God's my Father, haven't I received some of his nature? Aren't I a son of God? They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony. I know I'm born of God. I'm a son of God. I have his nature. He's imparted that life to me. Okay, I am humanity depraved. But praise God, there's another thing working in me. Delivering me, setting me free and changing me. But don't you rejoice over me, oh you devil. I'm going down to come up. And that's the truth. Like a cork, I'll bob up. Different. Clean. Well, time's passed by. Oh, rejoice not against me. My wife says I've got to sing it once more, so I will. I'm a man under authority. She says do it. I say sit down. No, we'll sing it once more. Oh, rejoice not against me. Oh, rejoice
Amen. Don't go and trust in yourselves. Trust in him who's able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless. And that'll be a miracle. That's for sure.